0: Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. I'm Claude Barabee, Director of the United States Naval Academy Museum. For Part 9 of our series with uh, former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, United States Naval Academy, Class of 1968, we have our interviewers from the Naval History and Heritage Command, historians Dr. Tyler Pitroff and Dr. John Sherwood. John, over, or Tyler, over to you. So I figured we'd pick up with uh, just a small question as a follow-up to uh, what we were discussing in the last episode. What do you think, Admiral, was your most powerful tool as CNO?
1: I think just being in the position um, and what I would call taking advantage of that. I had grown up over the course of almost 40 years at that point in, the, in uniform, uh, seeking and uh, being in command. Uh, and we are obviously a very hierarchical organization, in the military uh, and, and I just believe that when you are the senior person you know that sort of command authority is really critical to get right uh, and even though as the CNO I had no command authority per se uh, in our business every officer has a lineal number and it's basically seniority and in the Navy my lineal number as CNO was one so I tried to, I didn't try to abuse that, but I certainly used it in terms of knowing my position, knowing that those that, that work for me would respond as best they could, not to intentionally break the law, flaunt the law, or do anything like that, but certainly somebody with my background, as much command experience as I had, as much fleet experience as I had, to use that to the best of my ability, and an understanding about that, and I had learned over the course of that almost 40 years, an awful lot about sailors and families, uh, and and I believed in what I uh, had had learned over those almost four decades, and tried to use it as best I could. So I think the most the the most significant part of being in a position like that as a leader is acting like a leader and being in charge uh, and recognizing what the limits are as well but at the same time I wasn't shy about that at all either and quite frankly either in the CNO job or what was to come forward you know unbeknownst to me at the time when I took over CNO when I became chairman
2: there's a picture of you in in a ship's wardroom talking to enlisted sailors And it reminds me of a similar picture of Admiral Zumwalt in a similar wardroom talking to enlisted sailors. Between Zumwalt and yourself, maybe only Admiral Borda was as good at connecting to the troops, to the enlisted force. How did you develop those skills? How are you able to speak, because there is, it is a hierarchical world, the Navy, and sometimes it's difficult for officers, especially high-level officers, to really speak to your E-1, E-4, E-6?
1: Well, it's not, at least for me, it wasn't difficult to speak with them. What was difficult was breaking through so they'd actually ask me a meaningful question. I don't know if I use this example. Um, no, I actually I haven't because we haven't talked about the chairman's job. But I can remember, and I'll just fast forward a little bit because it's a perfect example. Because I would have all hands calls wherever I would go, and do it with malice aforethought to try to break through to see what the what was on the troops' minds. Uh, and I can remember going out to uh, um, Al Anbar Province in western Iraq as chairman uh, to talk to a thousand Marines. Um, and, um, someone on my staff had been out there preceding me, uh, and basically came back and said, well, the Sergeant Major basically told him, senior enlisted, uh, Marine, uh, just remember, you know, he's here for an hour, I'm here 24-7, and will make your life miserable if you ask one stupid question. So, I knew that, that's what I had to penetrate, and it it oftentimes would take me time to to do that, depending on the audience. But it was a skill that I had developed over time uh, and was pretty comfortable with. Um, I would not not necessarily uh, when I got heavily involved, uh, you know, with the army, particularly with the wounded. Um, uh, I was out at uh, um, shoot fourth um, ID out in Colorado, and it will come to me in a minute. But I said, uh, basically, I want to talk to the wounded, and I want the chain of command out. Uh, And you think think—I'm chairman—you'd think that that would clear the place. And yet, the Army hid one or two individuals, you know, in the building—you remember this, Karen? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, sure, I can't remember—I can't believe I can't remember the— Fort Carson? Yeah, it was Carson, yeah. Uh, and this was as we were, you know, lots of wounded in the wars and standing up these wounded regiments, which General Casey and the Army was doing. And, and, and so I was very clear I wanted people out. And, and I can remember, you know, starting to get into it with these wounded troops who were pretty vulnerable and pretty open. And I heard a noise over in the Puka three or four away. And there was some, I went over there, and there was some sergeant, you know, taking notes, you know. Uh, and so, I mean, part of the, part of the, um, it's not an aura, but the worry about seniority is that for some reason, you know, a senior officer is going to come in here and just tear everybody up, including the entire chain of command. And that's not unique to the Army, believe me. I've seen that forever. And I had no reputation for doing that, by the way, but it's just, you know, are we going to get fried here kind of thing. So... So that aspect of it from the sailor standpoint um, uh, was something I just was always comfortable with. I always, I tell, I tell midshipmen, here, one of the things you should do when you get to your first command is volunteer for collateral duties. I was a big sports guy, I played sports, I, I organized the ship's sports teams. Um, I had an interaction with him that I was just really comfortable with from the time I was a junior officer. And I, the further away you get from the deck plates, obviously, and as a four star, you're a long way away from that. But I really worked hard to find out what was on their minds uh, and how could I help them and integrate problems that they brought up into decision, the decision space that I had uh, constantly, decisions that were coming across my desk, whether it was as CNO or, or as chairman. So, so, what we've talked a little bit about maintenance, you know, maintenance money. Um, um, uh, when I was uh, when I was in Iraq um, the first time, so I'm in Naples. I go to Iraq in '04. In addition to my NATO hat, visiting the place that uh, the the Iraqi military academy called Arushda Maya outside Baghdad, uh, I also went to find the Seabees in Western Iraq because they're Navy, and I'm. And they're in, you know, they they're coming through my AOR, and I see these, and this was post Fallujah, and of course the Marines are praising the Cbs, and but they're out there on a string and a prayer. They're almost like they are like the Marine Corps. They just do with what they, with what they're given, uh, and they figure out a way to make it work. I didn't I didn't know anything about the Cbs really. I mean, I hadn't grown up in the Cbs. Um, and one of the things when I was CNO is I visited them. I talked about Biloxi, but, but I then, and we'll get to this, visited them in, uh, in Gitmo because they were building the prisons uh, at the time. And I found out they were on some astounding deployment cycle. It was like deploy for six, back for 10, deploy for six, back for 10. And how long have they have been doing that? They've been doing it forever. So I wanted, So when I'm CNO, now I want to know a lot more about that. And they just assumed you know that's just a way of life for them, and they were out of Port Waimea and they're out of Biloxi, uh, and they were critical enablers for the, for the war fight for the Marine Corps and eventually for the Army because they were so good and the Army, fell short. it was coming up short in terms of, uh, combat engineers. Um, so it's just I, I can't uh, you know as I'm as I'm as you ask me that question and I'm. Speaking, I just ought to put together what I've learned from the troops, uh, because it's it was an infinite amount of stuff, hard to get through the chain of command, uh, if you will, or hard to get responses, but it was just a skill that that uh, I was pretty comfortable with, and um, and it and it impacted me, and I think the organizations I led really significantly.
2: When you. Took office in 05 we had about 143,000 troops in Iraq, and one of your goals at CNO was to show that the Navy was actively and significantly involved, both in Iraq and Af- and Afghanistan. And under your watch, the Navy contributed 10,000 individual augmentees, IAs, to CENTCOM each year. And IAs basically volunteered to perform certain jobs with the Army and the Marine Corps. So they embedded themselves yeah. in Army and Marine Corps units. Can you talk about that? That's still, uh, that's still a thing today.
1: So uh, there's lots there, lots associated with this. But part of this was we're at war and my Vietnam time experience as has been the case for every war, knew that the Army was gonna bear the burden of a ground war. Uh, and so that, that was one piece. Secondly, um, I worried a little bit about the Navy being in what I used to call this tidy little place, you know, flying an airplane on and off a deck, you know, essentially supporting the war on the ground, but then they're back in a pretty comfortable place that night. In many cases, um, uh, and and not learning, you know, not taking away the lessons of war, if you will, and and so it was immediately on my mind. Actually, one of my trips to Baghdad was I th- I can't remember whether it was 04 or 05, whether I was in Naples or whether it was I was CNO. But George Casey was the four-star in charge of the war in Iraq at the time. Uh, and I was going to visit him. He wasn't there. But we were getting killed, literally killed, by IEDs at the time. And in particular, because we had no sensors. The, the Army, for the most part, had disbanded its signal corps on the active duty side at the end of uh, the Cold War. Uh, and so they had minimal electronic warfare capability. Same was true in a way with the Marine Corps. So we had no way of detecting these sensors that were, the IDs that were out there. And I remember walking into Palace on this trip and I sort of, I see this sort of, and and the, uh, we'd gone out as a military and said anybody got any ideas on how to, how to uh, um, help us get ahead of the enemy here. And I remember walking into Alpha Palace, and I see this this big stack of FedEx boxes and stuff that people had sent from all over the world, here, try this gadget or try that gadget or whatever the case might be. That's how desperate we were. And we were very much behind the enemy in terms of time, speed, what I I call speed. I remember having a, I met with a really hardcore British uh, EOD, former enlisted guy that was trying to help. Uh, a senior enlisted uh, and basically he said to me, he said, Admiral, you know, we are sending our equipment back to Indian Head for repair, you know, and the enemy is adjusting their tactics on the back of a napkin at a cafe. Uh, and that model just stuck in my head in terms of speed and where we were in 04 and 05. So uh, I uh, and then the other, that, so that was one trigger. The, the other trigger was at the time we had, after many years, made a decision that was accepted by Senator Kennedy. We were going to decommission the Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy's home port in Mayport, uh, Florida, last conventional carrier. Big, big issue because of the jobs, because of the number of troops, number of sailors, families, et cetera, in that area. So I went down there for a visit to see them after we had decided, made the decision, and I wanted to see what was on their mind. Of course, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? It's a terrific area for sailors because you have Jacksonville uh, on the aviation side, you have Kings Bay on the submarine side, and then you have Mayport on the surface side. So you can almost rotate ashore. You can do a long time there. And this is a time where what we called home basing was very much in play, meaning can I... Can I have a career in the Navy, in my rate, particularly on the listed side, and stay physically in an area, buy a home, can my wife, uh, spouse go to get a job and have a career, etc. So that area is a great area. Um, so at one point in time, while I'm on Kennedy, I have in all hands a thousand sailors on the, on the flight deck, I'm uh, sorry, on the hangar deck. And at one point in time, I start talking about the Iraq war, and I say, how many of you would go fight in Iraq. And I'm telling you, 80% of the sailors raise their hand. And that's not, in a way, it's a, it, it may shock some people. But my experience is, these are young kids that joined the military. This is the war their nation is fighting. They want to be in it. Now the chiefs, when they saw those hands go up, we're not happy campers, because these were all troops in their divisions that, you know, they wanted, they needed for work, et cetera. So that was, the, it was sort of those two things that really then triggered me to come back and look at, is there a way for me to help? Uh, and I talked to Pete Schoomaker. Um, it must have been, I must have been Sino. Uh I talked, I think, I talked to Pete Schoomaker, who's chief staff of the Army, about the EW thing. I said, look, I've got EW types. Uh, that can really help you in this endeavor. Had the same conversation with the Marine Corps. They weren't as receptive in the Marine Corps uh, uh, and in a way not surprising. The Marine Corps you know, likes their kit, they like to do it all themselves, uh, although they were still struggling with this as well. Um, and out of that came this whole idea of individual augmentee uh, which got us to 10,000. To the Air Force's credit, the Air Force ended up doing the same thing because the Air Force is very good on the electronic warfare side as well. You know, and in many trips to Iraq after that, <clears throat> I would run into soldiers that couldn't thank me enough for having the sailors that were embedded in their battalions that essentially save lives. Uh, and I ran in, and these were typically now one-year tours away from their ship, away from their naval, you know, their air station or their submarine base. Uh, And the other thing we didn't have, normally when you're deployed, you're deployed with a unit. There's a family unit back home that takes care of families. Now I've just got one or two sailors deployed. I don't have any structure set up to support them. That was a real challenge for us to support. Because if you can imagine, now I'm off with an army unit in, you know, in northern Iraq, and I'm this young spouse with, uh, you know, a young family. Uh, Who do I talk to? How do I even know? Uh, I don't know anything about the command, et cetera. So we had to work that hard uh, over, actually over many years, to make that as smooth as possible. But the whole idea was to relieve the pressure on, on the Army, on the ground forces, to uh, provide a capability they didn't have, electronic warfare, that clearly had a significant impact uh, on it in terms of being able to detect IEDs before they went off uh, and made a huge difference. Uh, and also that 18 to 22-year-old group that wanted to get in the fight. Um, and men and women from the Navy volunteered to a fairly well. And they would go off to, and Deb and I went down and visited Fort Jackson, which was their... Three weeks of training, I think, before they were boom. You know, now they're on the ground in Iraq in a war where the, there, were no, there were no demarcation lines anymore. I mean, you could get hurt in lots of places, whether it was downtown Baghdad or way out in the fobs, you know, uh, where the really intense combat was taking place. So it was a pretty extraordinary shift in terms of uh, w- what we did. Mainly it was to support the war effort.
2: Just following up on the electronic warfare question, or issue, do you think that electronic warfare has become too consolidated within the Navy vis-a-vis the other services? I, I just uh, about a year ago interviewed uh, members of a Growler EA-18 unit, yeah. and while their morale was excellent, I definitely got the sense that they were in high, high demand and greatly overworked.
1: They were during the war. In fact, uh, I did a Christmas uh, in Afghanistan. Were you there for that, for that Christmas? I mean, uh, high in the mountains, essentially, with a growler squadron. Uh, Actually, I think it was a prowler squadron back then. because we hadn't converted over to the Growlers, to the, to, to the EA-18 jet. Um, and they were working like crazy, and they were looking for needles in the haystack. But this all is tie- was tied to this, what I would call this speed issue, uh, because we were behind the enemy, and uh, maybe I'll talk later about this, but it really was Stan McChrystal, the three-star on the ground, that essentially changed warfare, to move us from a position of being behind from a speed standpoint to catching up to getting ahead and not only did he do that for the special forces but those TTPs tactics techniques and procedures contaminated the rest of the conventional force in terms of how do you get at it particularly how do you get at the enemy ahead of time and and uh, and get ahead of them um, uh, particularly and, and, and the EW piece of this was was just huge so I I worry from a standpoint of prioritizing across all the services that we don't have a high enough priority on electronic warfare. But back to what I told the Army Chief, Pete Schoomaker, back then is, I mean, we live and die by EW. I mean, because of the world that we operate in, always have been. Uh, And so we've got incredible expertise in each community uh, throughout the Navy that is, you know, that we can help you – help you in the fight. The other lesson for me anyway <laughs> in this is is you got to be careful what you get rid of. Which is there was this enormous pressure many of us would remember after the wall came down to downsize and to get rid of capability. And I think what the Marine, I think what the army did was actually put it in the reserves, but they had a really minimal capability, electronic warfare capability at the time they went into Iraq. You you really need to be pretty careful about it. What's your, what's your cut? In
0: 2005, uh, the Bush administration pivoted towards defense of the uh, global commons, or defense systemic defense, maybe I should describe it as, in their national security statements. The Navy, of course, has always had something of a role in this. Uh, the global commons, of course, referring to the world's oceans. Yeah. Um, there had been thinking in the— in the Navy before that point uh, along those same lines, but John uh, Morgan, Vice Admiral John Morgan had been developing a theory as to how the Navy should operate or at least uh, strategize what it does along those lines. And at about that time that you became CNO, he came out with this famous uh, bear claw slide, the 3-1 strategy. Uh, where essentially the idea was that, in addition to major blue water combat operations, stability operations or the global campaign against terrorists and homeland defense uh, were equally important naval missions. Yeah. Uh, this was somewhat controversial within the Navy at the time. Uh, how how did you how did this idea come to you? What was your reaction to this idea?
1: M- Morgan was always controversial in the Navy, <laughs> yeah. and, and he enjoyed he enjoyed that, and I enjoyed him and that aspect of him. He was the uh, N-35, the three-star in my staff at the time. And John's a big idea guy. You know, he just always had been, and I like that, and I like people. I'd like to have people like that around me. Uh, so from my perspective, it, you know, it was pretty close to, that's a, a big bite, you know, when you look at all three aspects of that. But it was very true. I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't just be a Blue Water Navy because of what was going on particularly in Iran, you know, in the Persian Gulf, the threat that was there as well. Um, and we couldn't look away, and this goes back to my time as Second Fleet in 2000, 2001, you couldn't look away from homeland defense. I mean, they're just, the world had changed in that regard because of 9-11. Um, and, not, and it wasn't just because of 9-11, it was because of existing threats that were, you know, working pretty hard to make it very difficult at home here. So I thought what Intellectually, what John had carved out was extraordinary. Uh, we all didn't agree, that's fine. You know, uh, I think in, the, uh, in, in part of what you've uh, uncovered here, you know, uh, Admiral Nathman was not a fan. But uh, Nathman was a, I mean, and I knew John, I knew Nathman from the time, really started to get to know him well from the time I deployed in 97. And he was a senior for a while. He was a senior guy in the Gulf. There was, there was very few naval officers, and I would argue senior across any services, that knew as much about war fighting, that understand it, There were as bright and connected as Nathman. So it was pretty rare when Nathman said something that I would ignore him, you know. I mean, he just, and, but he's got that, he has that, that blue water background, if you will. And his caution was, I think, in his argument, was you just need? It goes back to what I said about EW. You better be careful about, you know, dissing that which sort of got us here. Um, and part of my learning from all that is all these capabilities that we have. Nuclear carriers would be an example. If we're going to walk away from those at any point in time, we better be damn sure it's time to walk away. Because once we do that, it's not coming back. Um, and there's, you know, I mean, I didn't think about it that way then, back in 2005, per se. There was never any consideration from my standpoint of walking away from it. Uh, and I'd grown up, obviously, in a Blue Water Navy as well. Uh, so, but the, the, the expanded challenge, if you will, the global commons piece, uh, and, uh, and the need to protect our literally our ports at home, our coasts, you know, that was a huge consideration. So how do you take the Navy, in my case, that we have and best fill out and prioritize those missions?
0: And I imagine that factored into the
1: 313 numbers. Yes. Well, I, I, I think it did. I mean, I'd have to go back and look at that study.
2: Did history prove Nathman right? Yeah, I
1: think in 2020, I think in 2023, as we speak today, the world's turned mm-hmm. over again you know we're back think, to the future things change yeah and they do and they always have as we mm-hmm. look at a you know a revanchist Russia and a and a you know a more than slightly emerging China for the future <laughs> and so I, in that regard I think caution with respect to that capability is is really important and even as we speak carriers are under fire again because of, quote unquote, the weapons that China has been developing to kill carriers. I'd be pretty careful uh, about just sort of pitching in and saying, well, I guess that's going to happen and walking away from carriers now, just as I was then. Um, And uh, I think it's pretty naive to think that we don't understand that. And that we, you know, because we don't understand that we're not doing anything about that. Uh, I think that's, you know, we've had an ethos going back to my, literally my my first ship. You know, what was a destroyer? What was a picket destroyer supposed to do? What was a screening destroyer supposed to do? You're supposed to take the first hit so that, the you know, the carrier can live. And that's part of, been part of us forever. Not forever. I mean, basically, since carriers have been around. So
2: one of your ideas that i think has the most resiliency as we as we speak today in 2023 is the idea of maritime security and policing the global commons as an international problem yeah. it's not just a us problem and as as envisioned by morgan and yourself this idea of a 1000 ship navy yeah. not just our our 282 ships, but the navies of all of our allies, cumulatively, is what's going to make this this system work. Um, One of the interesting things about the 1,000-ship navy is this notion that the U.S. would focus on the high end and we would lean on the allies for the low end. Is that true? I mean, today we're, we're bringing back the frigate. There's, of course, the LCS. And some of our allies are, have developed uh, you know, aircraft carrier potential, the Japanese, for example. Yeah.
1: So, I, I mean, I thought, uh, and it was, I'd like to say it was my idea. It wasn't. It was, the Thousand Ship Navy was really John Morgan's idea. John Morgan and Jamie Fogo kind of put that together. I thought it was a brilliant idea. And what I didn't understand I I, I had a little in my head, but what I didn't understand in addition to creating opportunities to uh, work together to have more capability, whatever it was, the political capital that gets invested by various countries that allow their, their navies, in this case, to work with us was extraordinary. Uh, that I've seen that in spades since that time frame. So I had a I had a nascent feeling of that back then, but it goes back to to uh, and I can't remember if I've said this here. You know, when we left Af- when I left the job the chairman's job in 2011, there were 49 countries that had military capability in Afghanistan. That's a lot of political capital. So if I back that up to this thousand ship navy idea. That's a lot of capital, one. Two, it's a lot of capability. And we can argue high end or low end, um, uh, but we need the numbers, from my perspective, uh, and the commitment. And there's literally, since that time frame, if not before, there was this idea of working with allies and partners across the board, not just in the Navy. So all of that was encompassed in this idea of a thousand ship Navy. And then I, I'm guessing. I, I'm not. You. You can probably do the research and tell me. But I think it was at the the uh, October of 2005. Uh, what do we call that conference up in Newport? where All the navies came in. No, 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 no. It was a, uh, and it's still going on. I, I just can't remember. But essentially, you bring navies in from all over the world that. And CNOs come in from all over the world. Uh, they were so, they were so excited. The CNOs now, they were uh, Navy's. They were so excited that that was out there and that there might be a place for them. Part of this, from my perspective, was I love our Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard for me. And I've been working with them since, you know, I was a junior officer uh, down in in Guantanamo in the early '70s. Um, the Coast Guard just punches way above its weight. But they also have limits. But that integration uh, that we've had, particularly on the law enforcement side, uh, and in other operations, has been extraordinary. So, I mean, I had that background, just you know, a smaller force, smaller, you know, not capital ships in the sense of a navy, but, but the capability that they brought was extraordinary. So if I just took that and just expanded that and I understood the limits, I understood where where navies around the world uh, what their capabilities were, what they could and couldn't do and you could, I could fairly easily even to this day divide it you know, up into high and low and you also need to sustain it. You know my friends in the UK, that very special relationship I don't know how many frigates they're down to but last I counted it was a pretty small number So you can be part of the Thousand Ship Navy, but you've got to have some capability there. And this from a Navy that, you know, ruled the waves, quote unquote, uh, over a, you know, decades and decades. So, but, but that coalition piece, partnership piece, et cetera, gives you tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And the commons... Even to this day, I mean, the two big bodies of water that we focused on, one was a Gulf and the other was a South China Sea, which can get pretty shallow. That gets to LCS. We were, we were convinced at the time that would be a very important capability to in particular in the Gulf to handle the high-speed kinds of requirements that we saw coming from, from waves of, of uh, small ships, uh, if you will. But to your point a few minutes ago, is the world has then has changed again, um, and uh, and and you mentioned building the frigate. One of my former EAs is the president of the company that's, and was uh, um, a guy named Rick Hunt, and and Rick Hunt was a, as as good a naval officer as I've ever been around in my life. He knows what needs to go on that ship. I've been through, I've been through the the plan if you will and if he is able to build that ship close to what the capabilities are that's gonna yes it's a frigate it's gonna it's not an old frigate it's gonna be a different frigate and as you've seen over time and as we've taken destroyers from from 2200 tons which is where I started to 10,000 which is where we were spruance or or the cruisers you know the you know all of them have while they maintain they've they've retained sort of the designation they've gotten to be bigger and more capable ships uh, for the future so I'm pretty excited about that development for the future as well um, so so I uh, it's it's very difficult in all of this even in the position I was in uh, for the thousand ship Navy as a CNO so to uh, you know the world changes and getting that exactly right for the future is really really tough um, and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong
0: not even sure if it's right and wrong. It's mainly you make the choice that seems to be the choice for the time. And no, absolutely. Sometimes no, it pans out. Any
1: question? And in addition to, because LCS is obviously a hugely controversial ship. Outside the capability requirement, if you will, the requirement side uh, that was, you know, module for many missions that was high speed, et cetera. Then the design that we approved once the once the requirements were understood were just way too complex on and, and both both versions of the ship.
0: So your word choices in describing the 1,000-ship Navy have actually jogged my memory. Uh, in the last episode, I was remembering an article you did for Proceedings called What I Believe. You were actually advocating for the 1,000-ship Navy. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, so continuing in that vein, uh, one of the big efforts that you initiated as CNO in OpNav was an attempt to get an actual big Picture strategy written. Um, The Navy's made attempts at various, I guess, I'm hesitating on the word strategy because the the term that tends to get used nowadays is capstone document. Most CNOs have done at least one. Several CNOs have done multiples. Uh, Since the end of the Cold War and the end of the maritime strategy, uh, that's where it's gotten sticky over if we actually call it a strategy or not. Uh, But the big effort that you came out with as CNO ended up being called a cooperative strategy for 21st century sea power. And this wasn't, you know, cloister yourself with a couple of officers for a couple of weeks and boom, here's what we get. Uh, This was a big effort, multiple phases, socialized with as many officers as you could bring in from as many different fields as you possibly could, with the idea being uh, that you would come up with something that the entire Navy could get behind and that would really drive thinking across the whole force. Uh, The argument that was settled on was that America's vital interests were fundamentally related to the international economic and political systems and that the Navy was vital for protecting these interests, as we've been talking about, especially the global commons. That's interdependent networks of trade, finance, information, law, people, governance. Uh, All of that has to be protected because all of it travels over water in some capacity. Uh, Of course, a potential drawback of that strategy was that it could not be sustained in the face of force and resource requirements of the ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. you got a lot of competition for scarce resources. Um, So there's a lot of back and forth in the process of trying to develop that strategy because of the draw of resources that's ongoing. Uh, Can you talk a bit about how that sausage was made. Uh, how how did that process work? How did the idea come to you uh, or you know was it your idea? And then of course it was finished after you had gone to the chairmanship. So how did that process work?
1: So uh, greatly influenced by what CNO Clark did in his strategy creation. And I can't remember exactly what that was called. I probably wouldn't be happy if I can't remember that, but I I can't. But <laughs> I was really moved by the process, quite frankly. In fact, he did this, we did this, and I was involved in uh, in in Clark's um, putting his strategy together in that regard, uh, and we did this in conjunction with uh, the institute proceedings, and it was broken into, I can't remember how many sections, a handful of sections that were focused on various aspects of the strategy, and really rolling it out as I recall, month to month, over one month, over a couple months, or a couple issues, uh, et cetera, looking again for the broadest leadership, uh, readership that we could um, uh, possibly generate. So, so that kind of process was in my head, the importance of it, and I'd been there. You know, I'd been there in the mid in the mid nineties. You know, with CNO Johnson, uh, obviously with Clark, uh, and I thought it was a very important undertaking back to to, okay, what what I would call guidance, you know, th- this is what we're going to do and try to make it as clear as possible. It, somebody, I was actually having this discussion with a very senior naval officer uh, this week, um, and the point was made is not many organizations change their strategy every four years. And, and th- that's a really valid comment. So I would argue without putting it side by side, one of the things I tried to do was just evolve what Clark had done as opposed to Look, you know, I'm the new guy. It's going to be totally different, et cetera. And I think we need to be careful about changing it every four years. I mean, that comment was a uh, uh, was was well made by this particular senior officer. Um, but the <clears throat> and it goes back to the quote unquote maritime strategy, which stood up for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in its day, throughout the Cold War, um, uh, w- which was really significant and creating a document. Washington is not full of strategy commitments, if you will. Strategies that get developed, and people said "This is what we're going to do." Part of it is it's a political town, and people—if you do—if you put something out, you'll get held accountable against it, if you will, if you decide not to do it or very. And that doesn't bother me, but the the town is full of that. So, um, but I was—I—I you know, I, to this day, I'm consumed with what. If I'm working for somebody, what what do you want to do here? What what is the strategy? And certainly, I felt obligated to create that as well. So that was what was behind it, as as you know, pretty well defined, in many ways by what Clark had done in substance and in process. What Morgan put together for me, uh, you know, this is, goes to the Bear Claw piece, to the Thousand Ship Navy, et cetera, all of which I think came together in that strategy.
0: Um.
1: And, and you also, as a leader, you want to push, you want to reach. You, and, 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 you know, reaching for, you know, uh, you know, having reach goals, if you will, or stretch goals, I think was important as well. And I fundamentally believe what, you know, what you just read back to me about the economic, the financial, the trade, uh, the geographic, the sea lanes, which it's one of those things nobody pays in much attention to them until you don't have it. Uh, nobody pays much attention to what comes in and out of L.A., you know, Long Beach and L.A., until you shut the port down. And then it'll bottle up this country in a matter of days, quite frankly. Uh, uh, and it becomes a combination of, of it's not coming in, one, two, and sort of the panic that gets associated with going to the store. and Because it's not coming in, I better get it off the shelf. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't speak to this. One of the things about Katrina... Because we also had a, we had a remark, we do, the Navy's always had a remarkable diving and salvage capability. And I'm telling you, that capability at the mouth of the Mississippi for that crisis doesn't get, what they did was miraculous to clear the Mississippi up. And it doesn't get near the coverage or the praise that it should and when you when you look at that in some detail and see what commerce is moving down the Mississippi River, you know, literally from the you know the north of our country all the way down, if you bottled up the Mississippi, this country would stop, you know, again within within a couple of weeks because of what's on it. Uh, that gets taken for granted until you don't have it. So the Navy, in security, from a security standpoint providing security for the global commons, if you will, around the world uh, is absolutely critical. And when it goes, it's, it's not a good, it isn't a good outcome. And I have seen, I learned this, I can remember this is in my Persian Gulf deployment in 86, I think it was. I mean, I've literally seen just presence stop what could have been a really bad, Combat situation breakout and miscalculation. Just being there. Stop that. I mean, it's as if it was a movie playing right in front of me, except it was real uh, with a couple of ships. So, um, you know, I'm a huge believer in that in terms of from positions of strength preventing things getting out of control.
0: So, there's a bunch of points to the uh, specific core capabilities of the U.S. Navy in that strategy. Um, I believe the ones that are listed are forward presence, uh, deterrence, sea control, power projection, maritime security, and humanitarian assistance. Was there any point where you really came around to this point of view? Or do you really think this was something that just sort of developed through your entire career?
1: I actually think it was there uh, when, you know, when I took over seeing all those capabilities were capabilities that I've seen over time. I think the articulation of them was important. And then how do you, how do you resource it? You know, how how do you, how do you provide that capability across the board? Where do you go? Where don't you go uh, along those lines uh, was really key. So I thought it was a pretty clear uh, as I, and I haven't seen it in a, uh, a while. I haven't seen it in a while. But your really good homework here to identify that. I, you know, I in looking at that and preparing for this interview, I'm very comfortable with those six areas. Now, I mean, I'll take I'll take the one that you list six humanitarian assistance. That was uh, one. It's and it goes back to what I said about those young mm-hmm. uh, air crew on the on the uh, Truman uh, during Katrina. But But there are no missions that I've been on when humanitarian assistance is required that the troop sailors uh, don't feel exactly that way because they think they're helping humanity, and I've seen that throughout my life. Uh, But it isn't something we spend a lot of time on uh, until, one, there is a crisis, or, two, we'll do those kinds of things in port visits throughout the world. We always have done that ashore. Some kind of humanitarian effort uh, is uh, evident and and executed in almost every port visit I've ever I've ever been into and, and heard about from other uh, leaders uh, but it certainly isn't you know it isn't prioritized on a daily basis per se um, so it doesn't from my perspective unless you're in a crisis it it really doesn't pull you off of the other five missionaries if you will depending on where you are uh, I think that You know, the forward presence piece, and it's this what I call this light switch. You got to go from presence to war if you have to, instantaneously. The whole idea of the presence is being there to prevent war and sending the message that if it's going to be a war, I'm also here and I'll throw the switch. That's the position of strength, which I think is really key.
0: You really see both the ideas of Morgan and Nathman. In yeah, I yeah, of those two, yeah which absolutely. of course, was the entire point of the whole process, right? Yeah, so Just absolutely. get a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, last question on that one. Uh, author Peter Haynes has argued that CS21 uh, constituted the high watermark of what he called system-centric thinking among U.S. leadership and the apogee of emphasizing the protection of the global system uh, in American maritime strategy. Uh, do you agree? Do you see that? Do you think that's changed?
1: Well, I haven't actually... When I when I read that in preparation, I I I didn't disagree with that. Um, I think the what what more broadly or more maybe more broadly and at the same time more specifically, it speaks to the importance of American leadership globally. Then you know post uh, post World War II certainly through the Cold War in the aftermath of the, the end of the Cold War, the world sort of sorting out who's going to lead, and we did almost from a unipolar standpoint for a while, and, um, and then that obviously has evolved now into the, the challenge that we have with respect to leadership in the future vis-a-vis uh, United States or Russia and China. Um, I don't think Russia has much of a chance to do that. I think China's got a real chance to do it. And we've got to make a decision about what kind of country we're going to be. And are are we just going to pull back and isolate and take care of ourselves? I mean, it's just my own experience is I believe to the degree that we are not out there and engaged, problems that are there end up showing up on our shore one way or another. Uh, 9-11 is a good example of that, but there are others as well. Uh, So I'm an engagement guy. I'm a forward presence guy. I'm a be-out-there guy so that we don't have the problems, so those problems don't show up here. And I think the more we isolate, the more trouble we're going to be in over the long run. That's really key. And that also then gets into, you know, having allies and partners and big coalitions that believe essentially the same way we do.
2: One last question, um, and this is about the Navy Marine Corps team. Uh, you met with General Mike- Michael, is it Hagee? Hagee. Hage. Uh, for two days in October of 2005, so shortly after becoming CNO, to discuss these so-called third rail issues. Uh, Ma- Navy Marine Corps tactical aviation, future amphibious ships, uh, the Navy's plan for a riverine force, and the issue of command of expeditionary strike groups and uh, the Commandant emerged from the discussion saying, quote, we talked about those issues that affect the Navy and the Marine Corps, and I think we came out better. And that is going to continue pr- primarily because of the leadership of Mike Mullen.
1: So I mentioned earlier, I mean, Hague and I were class- our classmates. We've known each other. And, and despite the fact that the classes here at the Naval Academy are a little over 1,000 people, there are those that you know well and those that you know you're in a class, but you just haven't been around them much. And so I'd been around Hagee since Plebe summer, and we were good friends. We remain good friends today. So having uh, conversations with the commandant, if you will, um, on really difficult issues was, relatively speaking, easy. Uh, those four areas, let me try to take them in reverse, uh, I think I... Uh, I I guess my my um, statement on commanding expeditionary strike groups would be best um, exemplified in the fact that I put a Marine, you know, uh, in charge of one out on the West Coast. Um, And and I was fine with that. Uh, And he was a great officer and he did a great job. Um, uh, And uh, I mean, that's. You know that's one, and I picked the group pretty carefully to do it in because it, it certainly was, uh, it certainly was controversial. Um, with respect to uh, NECC, I, I, in one of my early trips to Iraq, I went to Haditha Dam in Iraq, and there are Marines up there that are driving boats around, and that didn't make any sense to me, quite frankly. And early in Iraq, I didn't. I didn't know for sure. Obviously, we didn't know how long it was going to last or not, it lasted a long time. So back to my earlier theory about, or belief about, can I help, can I relieve the ground force? I can. Uh, and we had certainly had swift boats to a fairly well during the Vietnam War. And, and I didn't know how far it would go or didn't know how long it would go, but that, that aspect of it led me pretty quickly to, a stat, to stand up NECC. Navy, the Navy, Naval or Navy Expeditionary Combat Command, I think, is what it was called. Eventually, get to uh, I think a one star that was in charge of it. Uh, that was important, um, and it's evolved over time. Um, it's been questioned, and I I don't have a problem with it being questioned. You know, relevance for the time uh, for its time right now, but it was very relevant then. And in pretty quick order, we had sailors driving those same small boats around Haditha, uh, et cetera, and doing other things uh, from an expeditionary standpoint. Um, uh, plenty of missions along those lines for smaller navies, you know, down particularly in Latin America, uh, uh, that, you know, engagement was important on as well. Important, uh, as well. Um, the issue of how many amphibs we should have and Navy, Marine Corps, aviation, money, boiled down to money, And there's this enduring battle between the Navy and the Marine Corps, even to this day. uh, And I certainly didn't; it it wasn't started under you know my watch. uh, About how many amphibs we should have? The numbers have ranged literally back in that day to they're not that far different now. To you know in the low to high 30s. This gets back to affordability. uh, It get back gets back to the shipbuilding account. It gets back to on time and on budget, you know, not very often, et cetera. So the Marine Corps would constantly argue for uh, more amphib ships. And I had seen this, the, my first tour in OpNav in 1996, when actually Jim Jones was a two-star in, in what what we called N85 to represent sort of the Marine Corps and amphibious world there. Um, so So how you resolve that, you know, we didn't. Hagen and I didn't resolve it, but we agreed to continue to try to address it. the The aviation issue is at the time. Navy had basically all the money for the Navy and Marine Corps for aviation, and each year we'd go through this huge food fight on how much more money the Marine Corps would need to fund its um, uh, its 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 aviation requirements. And the Marine Corps is known for wearing their systems out, flying their airplanes a long time. I mean, basically, you know, maximizing the utility over a period of the lifespan of whatever the system was. Um, uh, But we were also coming at a time when I was N8, uh, I can remember in the, uh, this was 2001, I put in $39 million for the first F-35 as the unit cost because we were going to buy a lot of them, and if you buy a lot of them, they're less expensive those costs have obviously ballooned over the last twenty years. But the Marine Corps had, different from the Navy, basically passed on its upgrade to tactical aviation. The Marine Corps had, I think at this point in time, two F-18 squadrons, carrier-based F-18 squadrons, but by and large they were dependent on the Harriers and Harriers were, you know, running out of altitude and airspeed. I mean, they were just old and their capability wasn't that much. So the, the result of the totality of that debate was while we were committed to F-35s, the most complex F-35 of the three variants that we were going to build was going to be the Marine Corps because the, the AV-8s were wearing out and the the F-35 needed to be V-STOL. It needed to be able to both hover uh, like a helicopter and then take off like a jet. <clears throat> and, and because of the sequencing of all that, uh, that program ran into trouble early because that was the most complex of the three. And we, w- we didn't take the lessons from probably the Air Force version, which was the simplest one, uh, and then roll that into debil- building it for the Navy and building it for the Marine Corps. That was just a timing issue. Extra- and an extraordinary, ex- extraordinarily expensive program, maybe the most expensive program in the history of the, uh, uh, of the Pentagon. Um, but we would go through these incessant battles uh, in terms of money, uh, and the Navy had the money, and then we would allocate it to the Marine Corps. At one point in time, I went to CNO-Clark, and I can't remember what it, uh, of the aviation budget, uh, I can't remember how much it was, but it was on the order of about 30%. That's what would go over there year after year. I did the analysis, I, I took a slide into Clark, and I said, I'm so tired of this, now I'm N8 at the time, I'm so tired of this battle Here's—I'll even add a percent or two, you know, 31 or 32 percent. Give the Marine Corps the money and let them figure it out themselves. That's how difficult those battles were. That was 2001, to 2002, 2003 for me. Now, fast forward to, hey, that didn't happen. Uh, I think in modern times, at least I've been told, that may have happened. But I, I'm not sure. <clears throat> but in my day, the Marine Corps would rather have the fight than the money. Uh, because they did pretty well in the fight, and they'd do it, you know, in the room, but then they'd also had tremendous support on the Hill that would, you know, provide back pressure on us uh, in the building of the Navy to, to get them more money. Um, so that was, those were the essence of the issues. It's one of those things that I'd been at sea, you know, on and off with the Marine Corps my whole life, and you love them out there just inside Washington. It, it was pretty tough. What, one other aspect of this, and we might come to this in, the, in our time talking about the chairman's job, because of the, know, I'll overstate this, but the bloodletting that went on in that fight for money, uh, it was pretty good training for me when I took over as chairman because it turns out the Army owns all the money for the Army Guard. And the fighting between the active duty Army that owned the money and the Army Guard was every bit as intense or more so than what I'd experienced in the Marine Corps. So I had some basic training as a result of those tours in the Navy when I got into how do you resource the Guard in particular during a time when uh, when they're deploying for war.
2: I think this is a good point to end. This is Preble Hall.